Hey, this is the Green Blues Show. The latest news, a bit of blues. Today, nothing is as constant as change. I speak with a historian about how it happens. 90 years after the execution of Italian-American anarchists Sacco and Vanzetti, a musical commemoration of one of America's most notorious jury trials and neutron stars. When these hardest of celestial objects collide, watch out. That's precisely what astronomers were doing this past fall when a pair of colliding stars made major waves. Welcome to the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. There's this guy who sleeps in the bus shelter at night beside the bus stop where I head off to work each morning. Occasionally, there are two of them sleeping feet to feet, covered in blankets that wouldn't provide much protection from the cold on a frigid Winnipeg night. The first time I spotted the one man, I thought about leaving him a $5 bill, but he was fast asleep, or so it seemed, and I didn't want to just put the money there or startle him out of his slumber. Homelessness is rampant here in Canada. As many as 300,000 Canadians experience homelessness, the Canadian Housing and Renewal Association reports. According to a 2016 study by Stats Canada, almost 10% of Canadians have been homeless at some point, forced to sleep with family or friends or in their car. Disabled people, victims of abuse and other violent crimes, are the most likely to be homeless. Aboriginal people are more likely to be homeless than immigrants or other visible minorities. The single most common denominator, lack of social contact. But there are solutions. The most obvious, provide housing. In response to the freezing death of a handful of homeless people a few years ago, the city of Toronto rented out 90 hotel rooms around the city. Others are coming up with more permanent solutions, summed up by the phrase, housing first, and it saves money. According to the Canadian Homelessness Research Network, emergency shelters, social services, and law enforcement cost $7 billion annually. An affordable housing strategy would reduce these costs by half. If there's anything more crucial than healthy housing, it's a healthy dose of compassion for that man or woman sleeping in the bus shelter. This is the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg.
Got No Home, written by Woody Guthrie, performed by Bob Dylan and the band at tribute concerts to Woody at Carnegie Hall and the Hollywood Bowl back in 1968 and 1970. You are listening to the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. For anyone not living in a cabin in the woods, human life on Earth moves at breakneck speed. Social mores, mass culture, technology, Paul Hurt is a student of change. He studies the history of the American West and the global environmental movement at Arizona State University. Things are always changing. It's the nature of the world. It's the nature of the universe. But what makes change today in, in, our, in our lifetimes, in the lifetimes of people living on the planet today and over the last several generations, what makes change now different than change has always been? Well, the world always changes. That's uh, that's one of the questions that historians uh, grapple with and love to talk about because the pace of change has not been constant throughout human history. Um, the farther back in time you go, um, the more you see societies um, retaining a sort of a, a specific character for long periods of time, 
without you know substantial transformation, except in the face of a, a major crisis. Um, the closer you get to the present, um, the more often and the more rapidly you see societies undergoing substantial and structural and revolutionary change. Change is just coming so fast now. And I think, you know, psychologically and biologically, we're probably not equipped to handle it so well. You know, when, when there was maybe a million human beings on the entire planet, our ability to affect our natural resources, the surrounding environment, you know, rivers, the climate, we, we had no ability to, to have any effect other than at the local level. And there were so few of us that we could move around our, our environments, our, you know, the landscapes that we inhabited and subsisted on. We could move around them freely without bumping into another million people. So, so many of us live on this planet now that we have uh, the kind of profound impact on the planet that has never we've never had before in human history. So that's one thing that's brand new and one of the reasons that change is so widespread and so rapid and so profound. Another reason, obviously, is our technology. Um, you know, when, when we had stone tools and sticks, our ability to affect the environment was based upon muscle labor, the energy that we contained in our bodies from eating food. In the last 150 years, we've, we've invented steam engines, electricity, nuclear power. I mean, the energy that we have available to us now to do work in the world so far exceeds anything that any of our ancestors ever had access to or ever could even conceive of. That that's another reason that there's such profound, rapid, and fundamental transformation is our technology and our energy systems. It's a remarkable, uh, amazing thing that we've done in creating this modern, industrial, consumer-oriented world. But it's also had all these side effects, these unintended consequences, problems in the world with pollution and the loss of biodiversity and uh, the, uh, the conquest of native peoples. There, there are a lot of consequences to this development that trouble most of us on the planet, and I'm one of those persons who's always thought somebody needs to speak up for nature. Somebody needs to say, wait a minute, we've screwed something up over here. Let's recognize it and do something about it to make it better, to recover you know, damaged ecosystems, for example. So I'm always in, interested in looking at how the way we change nature um, doesn't just causes doesn't just bring us benefits that's why we change nature is to get something for ourselves that we want but oftentimes when we do that we change nature for the worst and that comes back and has repercussions on us I'm interested then in figuring out how is it that we come to understand that we've caused a problem that we're responsible for that we should do something about how do we convince a critical mass of people that this is a problem that we should do something about and then how do we organize ourselves to fix that problem? The big one today is climate change. You know, in the United States, we're, we're still fighting to convince people that it's a problem. That's the first stage, just to get a cultural consensus that we've created a problem. 
And then even those who admit that there is a problem with the changing climate don't want to admit that we're culpable, that we have a responsibility to do something about it. And anytime you go to change the world, and you're interested in change, anytime you go to change the world, you go up against a set of vested interests who helped put that current world into place. And uh, they have a vested interest in keeping people from understanding the problems that the world causes, because that would mean if people thought, yes, we caused this problem and it's not a good thing, we should do something about it, that pretty much says we have a responsibility to change. And if change is going to not benefit you and you don't want that change, one way of trying to keep the change from happening is by encouraging people not to believe that the problem exists in the first place. So how do we promote change <clears throat> without threatening interests? How do we promote change in such a way as to, uh, to achieve buy-in from everybody? It seems it's, it's, yeah. it's, not, it's a fantasy, perhaps. Yeah. Well, you know... Um, like we need a new sort of social contract or biological contract with, yeah. with the living world around us. Yeah, it depends on what you're trying to change. Certainly there are a lot of... Um, things that need to be fixed in the world that we can probably craft a win-win solution to. If we get everybody to the table and we make sure that everybody's interests are accounted for, we might be able to come up with a solution that isn't really going to harm everybody. But there's only a limited number of solutions in which you can always have a win-win. And there are going to be times in which uh, certain vested interests are going to lose some of their privileges and their positions, and other people who were maybe marginalized before, who were experiencing the costs of development, but few of the benefits, you know, there may be a sort of a reshuffling of the distribution of costs and benefits in society. And some people who got a lot of benefits and dodged the costs may have to pay a little bit more. And some people who paid a lot of the costs and got few of the benefits, they may be getting some of those benefits. So that's why change is hard, because you don't always have a situation where everybody agrees on what the correct course of action is. Some people will win and some people will lose in most instances of social change. And therefore, you get conflict, you get resistance. So there, there are examples of, of really dramatic sh change in our society over a really brief time scale. Oh, yeah. Like the thing that I like to think about is like tobacco smoking uh -huh. in public. Like within a matter of a few years, suddenly here in, in the developed West, it's no longer socially acceptable to yeah. smoke in, in public. That's a good example. And, and others have said, well, slavery was, was banished after thousands of years and over the course of relatively few number of years, slavery was banished. So what sorts of examples of, uh, of, of sudden, sudden pr progressive change, whatever progressive might mean, um, uh, interest you the most? And, and uh, what examples of change mm -hmm. instruct your own, uh, your own analysis and teaching? One of the examples of significant change that happened fairly quickly that I point out in my teaching American history classes is the civil rights movement. Um, you know, we had slavery for a couple hundred years in this country, abolished it during the Civil War, but we didn't abolish the inequitable social relations 
that slavery was based on. We didn't abolish the, the racism, the two-tiered society, um, the disadvantages and oppression of African Americans. None of that was abolished by the Civil War. And for the next century, basically, for the next hundred years, um, blacks suffered significantly uh, under a legal system that kept them disenfranchised and kept them marginalized both in politics and in economics and in society and culture. And after a hundred years of people advocating for greater justice and equality for African Americans, we suddenly in the period of about two decades went through a fundamental sort of cultural transformation about race relations in this country and passed the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act and we had people marching in the streets and, and we broke down all kinds of barriers, segregation barriers in public facilities and in schools. It was really difficult. There was a tremendous amount of violence and suffering and pain associated with it. But, you know, emerging after about a decade, a decade and a half of struggle, um, American society kind of emerged in a different place. Now, we still have racism in our society, and I know there are a lot of people who say nothing's changed, but if you look at history and look at what it was like for an African-American to live in, in an American city in the 1930s and 40s and even the 1950s, you would not, if you, if you had your eyes open, you wouldn't say, oh, you know, today is just like then. It's dramatically different, and it happened pretty quickly. Same thing with uh, women's rights. Women have been advocating for greater political uh, opportunities, for greater economic opportunities, uh, for more equality uh, in society, greater respect. And, uh, you know, for, for hundreds of years, we've had a, a sort of an incipient feminist movement in this country since the beginning of the 19th century, 200 years ago. But Again, in the same period as the civil rights movement, there was about a 10 to 20 year period in which women's rights and feminism finally sort of exploded and changed culture. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that women couldn't even apply to get into medical school. They couldn't apply to law schools. The reason we have so many men, male doctors and male lawyers is because the schools that trained the doctors and the lawyers explicitly forbid women from applying and entering the program. If you were a woman and you wanted to become a doctor, there was only one or two women's colleges that trained you in doing that. And we broke all of those barriers and forced uh, colleges and universities and professional schools to open up to women. And uh, it's been a long time. It's taken two generations for us to really see the positive effects of it. But that moment in time in which we changed the laws, changed expectations, changed the way men thought about their own privileges, um, that was pretty rapid when you think about social evolution in a country that's 200 years old. Uh, it wasn't 10 years ago that it was controversial to have an openly gay person on a television program and uh, talk about permitting gay people to get married was such a marginal uh, proposal. Uh, nobody thought that that would, that that would happen. There were people advocating for it, but they were, you know, spitting in the wind. And suddenly, just 
remarkably rapidly, there's been like over a three to four year period, there's been a sudden switch in American attitudes towards gay people, lesbians, transgender, et cetera, that wasn't, nobody would have predicted 10 years ago. So it's really difficult to, to anticipate when a big social change is gonna come, and often when it comes, it comes as sort of a landslide, and then a few years later we look back and we say, why were we even debating that? And I think that's where we are right now with gay rights. I think the younger generation, the students in my classes, they don't even know what the controversy is about. They don't get it at all. They're like, what do you, are, you people are crazy. Because they live in a different world and they've sort of absorbed an entirely different set of, of biases and expectations about social relations that don't include prejudice against uh, um, bisexual and gay people. And so, uh, the, you know, they're going to be the next generation and they don't share those biases that our generation and our parents' generations had. And it was all culturally constructed and it takes a while. Sometimes it takes a generational change. But when those changes happen, sometimes they just rush upon us unexpectedly and we just have to marvel that we've been fighting for decades for something and suddenly it all just comes barreling down. And so for those who seek change, the question would be how, how does one most effectively advocate for change? Right. People who advocate for change, they do it because they have to, because right. they believe in it, but there's, right. no, there's no magic bullet. And there's no way of knowing whether or not it's ever going to work. Right, right. You just have to be committed to fighting for what you believe in. And, uh, and you have to have hope or you can't stay committed over the long term. You know, I've noticed that when I first started teaching, I would, I would educate my students about all the obstacles, all the ways in which... Um, um, social inequity is entrenched in the system and difficult to change, all the ways in which um, uh, environmental problems um, are going to be difficult to solve. And I found that I was turning them off, making them feel hopeless. And so I started teaching about um, successes, about uh, change that did happen, about wins from progressive organizations that were able to accomplish something that seemed like it was against all odds. but they succeeded. And, uh, and even though half the time those battles are lost, half the time some of those battles are won, and if you teach people that it is possible to make change successfully to improve society, um, it gives them hope that it's, you know, it makes them feel that it's worthwhile to get involved, to seek change. The worst thing uh, the worst way to make it sure that change won't happen is to give people the sense that change is impossible. And uh, hope for change, <laughs> that was uh, President Obama's uh, campaign pledge, hope and change. It was, it was a brilliant campaign slogan because that's the key. If you have no hope that change is possible, you're not going to try. And then that guarantees things stay the way that they are. Paul Hurt is a professor of history and senior sustainability scholar at Arizona State University in Tempe, Arizona. Some things never change, like love and heartache. This is Big Maceo. Things have changed.
something, baby, I would like for you to know the way you have treated me. It won't work no more. Cause things have changed. I don't have to worry about you anymore. You told me that you love me. If I thought it was true, you called me to misuse my home. All on the count of you. But things have changed. I don't have to worry about you anymore. I know you are lying when you lay down across my bed, dragging that old IW hopper and talking all out your head. But things have changed. I don't have to worry about you anymore. No, boy. I'm so glad I don't have to worry no more. to stay so worried I used to be so blue but all of my worries was on the count of you but things have changed I don't have to worry about you anymore so bye bye baby Yes, I am through with you, but if you don't stop your lying, it may be the death of you, but I'm so glad, I don't have to worry about you anymore. Major Merriweather, a.k.a. Big Maceo, was a a big figure in the pre-war Chicago blues scene. This was recorded in February 1945 for the Bluebird label, Tampa Red, on guitar. This past August marked the 90th anniversary of one of modern history's most notorious acts of justice or injustice, depending on your point of view the execution of Italian-American anarchists Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti. The two tradesmen were convicted in July 1921 for payroll robbery and murder. Their hasty trial and conviction and six-year appeal stoked huge controversy. Their execution in the electric chair in August 1927 triggered riots in major cities around the world, Here's a story of mine from a few years back featuring peons to Sacco and Vanzetti by Woody Guthrie, commissioned and recorded by Folkways Records. My name's Eaton Harris, and I'm in Winnipeg, and I'm sitting in a little cafe called Mondragon Bookstore and Coffee House in Winnipeg, staring out the window over at Old Market Square, 
where on August 21st, 1927, a couple thousand people gathered to call for the stay of the execution of Sacco and Vanzetti. Sacco and Vanzetti were a couple of Italian-born American anarchists who had been accused of a crime of killing a couple of people, and one a security guard, another one was a paymaster at a shoe factory, and uh, robbing a bit of a bit of cash too. The whole trial was basically stacked against them. So there were people calling all around the world. There was gatherings in, in not only in North America but in Europe, all around the world, calling for the, the stay of the execution of them. The year is 19 and 20, kind friends, and the great world's war we have won. Old Kaiser Bill, we've beat him once again in the smoke of the cannon and the gun. Old von Hindenburg and his Royal German Army, they are tramps in tatters and in rags. Uncle Sammy has tied every nation in this world in his long old leather money bags. If you go back to the end of the First World War, you had the Russian Revolution, you had the end of the war where um, American corporations, uh, the rich in America were getting extremely rich off of the fact that they entered the war, um, you know, a war that was being fought on European soil. They were the ones that were really the victors in this whole thing. So you had a lot of people in America getting rich and America became a huge imperialist power. Then you have people, you know, the poor back in the States that were not seeing any of the benefits of this. And Sacco and Vanzetti were just part of this, part of a really large labor movement that was basically being crushed after the First World War. Sacco and Vanzetti had preached to the workers. They was carried up to old Judge Thayer. They was charged with killing the payroll guards and they died in the Charlestown chair. Well, the world shook harder on the night they died than was shaken by that great world war. More millions did march for Psycho and Vanzetti than did march for the great warlords. Well, the I'm Peter Miller. I'm a documentary filmmaker. As I've been making films and working on people's films for years and years, I've been drawn to stories of courageous people who have tried to stand up to make a better world. And Sacco and Vanzetti is a really elemental story in American life, but very few people know anything about it anymore. Sacco and Vanzetti were in prison from 1920 to 1927 when they were ultimately executed. Uh, and during that time, these two men who didn't speak much English started to write letters. Some of the writing in those letters is some of the greatest literature I've ever read. And when I read those letters, I said, this has to be a, a movie. I want to welcome you all to this special screening tonight of Sacco and Vanzetti. Um, uh, my name is Mary Hedahl, and I'm the Director of Development for the New York Civil Liberties Union. We're having a discussion right after the film, and with uh, the director of the film, Peter Miller. So please stay around afterwards. We'll have a brief discussion and a brief uh, question and answer. Right. Sacco and Vanzetti lays bare a lot of the mythology about American society. Right. It certainly shows the difference between what America is supposed to be about and what it has been in certain circumstances. This is not about Van Zetti. It's, it's not a question of whether he was guilty or innocent. It's about us. I talk about the Sacco and Van Zetti case as often as I can. 
uh, you know, it's never very far from my mind. There's always something that happens in the daily newspapers that brings that case to mind. These two men could not get justice in the American system. I'm Donna Lieberman, executive director of the New York Civil Liberties Union. This country has a very um, uh, sad history of, um, of persecuting ethnic minorities, people with the wrong politics. During and after World War I, it was the German and Italian new immigrants um, and the anarchists and the Wobblies. During World War II, it was the Japanese who were put into concentration camps. And in, during the McCarthy era, the communists. Um, and now, the uh, Muslims, South Asians, Arabs, or people who are perceived to be that, there's no question but that without the death penalty, Sakhalins and Zeti would have lived a nice long life. Um, there's no question. Nicola Sacco, a shoe factory hand, Bartoli Movan, Zeti, a trade union man. Judge Webster Thayer swore they'll die, but I've got to get to Boston for sundown tonight. Root hog and die, friend, root hog and die. Gotta get to Boston, root hog and die. Psycho and Vanzetti die at sundown tonight, so I've got to get to Boston, root hog and die. You know, as I've been making this film over the past many years, I'll say, you know, I'm working on a film about Sacco and Manzetti, and a lot of people will say, were they ball players? You know, weren't they the guys who tried to commit the perfect crime? Or, you know, I remember them from high school, but I don't remember anything about them. I mean, their story has been largely forgotten. People marched on behalf of Sacco and Manzetti all over the world, in Paris and in London and in Moscow and in Mexico City and in Buenos Aires and in Tokyo and in Africa. Union Square in New York City was uh, the locus of many of these demonstrations. One of the men in our film. See here I, I am on Union Square in Manhattan. Hi, do you know who Sacco and Vanzetti were? I don't, I'm sorry. No, that doesn't mean anything to me. I think they were put on trial and they were sentenced to death and this was political reasons. It was in the 1920s, something like that. Yeah, they were anarchists. They were involved in labor parties in Rhode Island, which uh, were anti-communist and organized by figures in the mafia. Hey, Billy no. Idol and all that, you know. I don't even know who they were. I remember hearing something that there was conspiracy that possibly the gun stuff was planted. They both were avowed anarchists, and they had to be blamed for a crime that was committed at the time. And it's pretty well known that one of them was totally innocent, though both were executed. And because they met the profile, they were Italian and they were immigrants. Oh, sure, yeah. Sacco and Vanzetti were um, really, really a tragic period in America's history is sort of like an ongoing tragedy to this day. In some ways, you could consider all the people we're killing in Iraq and everywhere else in the world, um, you know, corporate America's executions. Anyone who doesn't agree with the idea that, um, you know, the World Bank should be controlling everything and, you know, the world's resources are basically ours. He was murdered, he was uh, executed, he was uh, found as a uh, spy or something for the war, in, part of the war, and he was murdered in Boston. That's all I know of him. 
Sacco and Vanzetti. Do we know about Sacco and Vanzetti? Why is their name familiar? Sacco and Vanzetti. Who are they? They were Italian immigrants, anarchists, executed 80 years ago this oh, summer. Oh, that's yeah. right. I was reading about that recently, about something. Some say that they were, uh, they were framed, that they were not guilty, they were fall wrongly executed. Well, it's a bit like the Rosenberg case, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, well, the simple solution would be, why does this country have this bizarre death penalty thing? I mean, that's... Well, I hope justice will prevail. Will, is there going to be a trial again or not? No? Well, in any society, whenever you see intellectuals and immigrants being targeted, you know that we're in trouble. There's, uh, society's in trouble. It could all come back again, couldn't it? Say there, did you hear the news? Psycho worked at trimming shoes. Vanzetti was a peddling man who pushed his fish cart with his hand. Two good men a long time gone. Two good men a long time gone. Psycho and Vanzetti are gone. They left me here to sing this song. Well, to me, the interesting question is not were they innocent or were they guilty. I mean, we could debate that forever, and you could look at the evidence and, and get lost in all of that. But the real question is, what does their trial, what is the way in which they were, they were handled in the courts say about America? Unfortunately, what it shows is that our country has always had something of a problematic relationship to immigrants. They couldn't get a fair trial in this country because they were Italian immigrants. They couldn't get a fair trial uh, in 1921 because they were radicals. This was a time of tremendous patriotic frenzy. World War I was not that long over. Uh, there were bodies of boys who had died in Europe were still coming back in coffins. And the public really had been whipped into a kind of fear of reds, fear of radicals, and patriotism that really tainted this trial. And here were these two men who were anarchists, who were draft dodgers, they're tried by an all-Anglo-Saxon all jury of, of rather conservative local men who, after a seven-week trial where much of the evidence suggested that there was way more than a shadow of a reasonable doubt that they were, they were innocent, uh, convicts them within a, just a few hours. The foreman of the jury during the trial, a friend of his comes up to him and says, you know, I don't think that they did it, these two uh, these two guineas, and the jury foreman, a guy named Ripley, uh, turns to his friend and says, who cares, they should hang them anyway. The monkey unlocked the courthouse door, and the elephant all the hardwood floor, and did jump the kangaroo, and then did hop the rabbits too. Next in come the two baboons, next in rolled a dusty storm, next in waddled a polar bear to keep the judge and jury warm. Everybody knows the mockingbird rode down every word he heard. The lawyers all were foxy sly, but a foxy nose and a foxy eye. Old judge there, take a shackle off of me. Old judge there, take a shackle off of me. Turn your key and set me free. Old judge there, take a shackle off of me. My name's Eaton Harris from Mondragon Bookstore and Coffee House in Winnipeg, and right now. I'm standing in the middle of Old Market Square where on August 21st, 1927, 
there was a huge crowd that was gathered right here where I'm standing calling for the stay of the execution of Sacco and Vanzetti. Chances are if we did walk around and ask people who are Sacco and Vanzetti, for sure I'm, I'm assuming not too many people would know the answer to that. Uh, why is that the case? Well, number one, we don't teach it in schools. Um, our media is not going to be talking about these two anarchist um, Italian-born Americans who, who you know, supposedly killed a, a, a couple of people and, and there was a robbery as well. And so not too many folks would, would know about Sacco and Vanzetti. And it, it's unfortunate because whenever there's a case of, of, you know, a lot of prejudice against a certain people, we know that there's going to be miscarriages of justice. So even teaching the critical thinking to, to make sure that people recognize this. Oh, ho, psycho, psycho. Ho, ho, Niccolo, psycho. Ho, ho, psycho, psycho. I just want to sing your name. Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti died in the electric chair on August 23rd, 1927 almost 90 years ago. Woody Guthrie's Ballads of Sacco and Vanzetti is available on the Smithsonian Folkways label, a marvelous collection. This is the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. Falling, Mississippi Fred McDowell. Speaking of big stars colliding, last October, astrophysicists around the world observed the rarest and most astonishing event, the collision of two ultra-dense neutron stars, the cataclysmic smash-up 130 million light-years from Earth, that is to say 130 million years ago, generated a blaze of light brighter than a billion suns, along with a pulse of electromagnetic radiation that generated a ripple in space-time. In the course of doing so, upheld a century-old theory of Albert Einstein's. Samar Safi Harb is Canada Research Chair in Supernova Astrophysics in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg. Can you tell me... What was this collision all about that everybody was talking about and astonished the, the, the astrophysical world? Like, well, what actually happened? 
Right, so it was an amazing event in the history of astrophysics, I would say. That was on August 17th uh, this year. Uh, so the event was referred to as GW170817 because that's the date. Um, it was an event that was uh, detected first by LIGO, which is uh, uh, a gravitational waves detector and I'm sure you've heard of LIGO uh, big time in the news recently they won the Nobel Prize uh, in physics this year prior to that event in fact uh, for their discovery of the very first discovery of gravitational waves from merging black holes so when two black holes merge then you expect to see these gravitational waves which result from the distortion of or ripples uh, in space-time that have been predicted by Einstein more than a century ago now. So that was the very first direct detection of gravitational waves from merging black holes that was predicted by Einstein a hundred years ago. Now what happened in August was the very first detection of gravitational waves from merging neutron stars instead of black holes and that was so exciting for the community because it was followed up by some 70 telescopes across the world um, that detected also light, not just gravitational waves from that event. So it was a new era in astrophysics where you're combining gravitational waves uh, physics with electromagnetic radiation across the electromagnetic spectrum from radio all the way to high energies. So if one had been standing at a comfortable distance away from these two neutron stars um, and were to actually have been able to see them, what would they have been doing before they collided with each other? Right. So this is precisely what LIGO detected, is they would be spiraling in. Uh, there will be gravitational waves basically detected because of the ripples in space-time, because these are very strong gravity objects. Uh, a neutron star is uh, the result of the collapse of a massive star. Uh, so stars about 10 times the mass of the sun or heavier than that will eventually die uh, in explosions and they make objects that we call neutron stars. These are primarily made of neutrons under extreme densities and they have the size of a city like Winnipeg but they are a bit more massive than the sun, so they are extremely dense objects. So when you get two of these actually spiraling in together, there's extreme gravities, extreme temperatures, extreme magnetic fields being bumped into each other. It's gonna be a catastrophic event, but also in the process, because of the ripples in space-time, they emit the gravitational waves. And that's what was first detected by LIGO. So LIGO told us there is something happening out there. It was actually 130 million light years away. So we're looking at what happened 130 million years ago of these two neutron stars, very dense objects, merging together and telling us that this is happening. And following that, all the telescope pointed at that event and detected it in light, which is the more typical way of studying astronomical events. But this time, this is the first time where we see both the gravitational waves, which tell us that the event is occurring. Indeed, not just like we think it's happening, it's for sure happening. And then we're seeing what happens after such two neutron stars are basically merging. For the first time, we are seeing 
what people have been predicting for decades. Now, what, what I, I found intriguing amongst other other things was that uh, neutron stars are the hardest objects in the universe. Mm-hmm. They are extremely dense objects. Uh, so, like I said, they're more massive than the sun. Their mass can range from one time one sun to a couple of suns. So they're a bit more massive than the sun. But the size is about the size of a city, about you know ten to fifteen kilometers uh, radius. And so, just imagine squeezing the sun into the size of a city. You get an extremely dense matter. And in fact, the densities are above nuclear densities. They even exceed the density of an atomic nucleus. Um, And these are uh, basically made of a sea of neutrons, which are some of the elementary particles. And these neutrons are under extreme pressures because of the extreme densities. So what, what what would have happened when they collided with each other? A black hole was created and they both went into the black hole. Um, well, that's a very good and important and uh, extremely puzzling question at the moment. Actually, that's what people are after, understanding what happened to this merging event. So we know it happened. We know it emitted light across the electromagnetic spectrum from radio to high energy radiation. But we still do not know if the merged event led to a neutron star, a heavy neutron star, or a light black hole. So a light black hole. Right. So the two neutron stars masses, um, when you combine them, obviously, so when you have two neutron stars merging, you expect to have a, a, an object about the size of the sum of the masses, right? So the first one had a mass between 1.2 to 1.4 solar masses, and the other one is somewhere between 1.4 and 1.6 solar masses, so they're both just above uh, the mass of the sun. If you add them together, you get a total mass of 2.7, 2.74 solar masses. That total mass is could be the heaviest neutron star we know or the lightest black hole we know. And it's a very important question and a puzzle to solve in the years to come. Now. People tend to think at the moment that it's most likely to be a light black hole as opposed to two neutron stars. And the reason for that is because of the light we see. So I told you that this has been observed across the electromagnetic spectrum. Um, In the infrared part of the electromagnetic spectrum, we are looking at the uh, freshly synthesized heavy nuclei from this process, which made all these heavy elements like gold and platinum. Um, And at the same time, in x-rays and in radio light, so in the opposite ends of the electromagnetic spectrum, we're seeing um, the result of the shock from the ejecta into the surrounding. And by just observing the behavior of the light in these wavelengths, people tend to believe that it's more likely to be a black hole rather than a neutron star. But this is something to be tested, I'm sure, in the many years to come. And you mentioned that um, uh, amongst the ejecta were these heavy nuclei like gold and titanium, and and it had never been observed. You know, Burbage's theory about the triple alpha process process and how exploding stars just produced elements up to iron and where do the heavier ones come from? Exactly. Did people actually, astrophysicists, actually observe 
um, the presence of gold and titanium and right. other heavy elements bursting out of... Right. So we, we do have various lines of evidence uh, to say that these heavy elements are formed in supernovae, in fact. Supernovae, like I mentioned, if you have a massive star, as it goes through its life, it's going to die, and this death makes an explosion. So as the star is evolving, it makes elements heavier and heavier than hydrogen, partly with this triple alpha process, but it goes beyond that up to the point where iron is formed. So we know that massive stars can form elements up to iron. So the question is what happens beyond iron, right? What makes the elements heavier than iron? So supernovae are really prime candidates or suspects for this because during the explosion itself, the conditions are such that you have nutrient-rich material that's going, and there, it's extremely hot energetic environment where you can have this so-called R process, which is rapid neutron capture, which makes these really heavy elements. So that's one kind of suspect for um, making elements beyond heavier than iron. And that's what I keep telling my students. I personally am interested in supernovae and the remnants of these explosions. And uh, we believe that they make some of these heavy elements. But another process that's theorists uh, have predicted make also the heavy elements is the neutron star neutron star mergers so simulations show that if you merge two neutron stars again these are neutron rich materials so obviously you have a lot of neutrons there and so that collision is again extremely violent it's going to help synthesize or form these very heavy neutron rich materials such as gold and platinum and the heavier elements. So, but this is the very first direct proof that these elements, in fact, were made in neutron star, neutron star mergers. Now, a question that's, that's um, intrigued me uh, um, is, what is a black hole, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, these things collided and may well have formed a black hole that they sank into. Right. Um, if one were to go into a black hole, right. where would one end up? Uh, right. So it depends. I mean, if, how if you were, you know, had had the correct equipment and suit, right. you can imagine such a thing <laughs> right. to protect yourself, and you went into a black hole. Where where would you end up? Right. You don't want to do that. First of all, <laughs> I would say, but it depends. You know how far you are from the black hole. So we define black hole by what's called the event horizon. The event horizon is the distance from the black hole that tells you uh, things will escape from there at a speed equal to the speed of light. So you're with, if you're within that radius, uh, then nothing can escape, not even light. Nothing, absolutely nothing can escape from within that event horizon. If you're beyond that, then you know things will spiral around the black hole, and we believe they also make what's called an accretion disk, which is a very hot disk-like uh, structure surrounding the black hole, and this thing shines in x-rays. And that's how we discovered black holes to start with back in the late 60s. Black holes were discovered because they shine in x-rays because of this disk form spiraling uh, around black holes. So I guess the answer to your question is you cannot get too close to the black hole or to within the event horizon because nothing will escape it. But beyond that, this is where the light is detected. But so it is. It is matter. A black hole uh, right. is formed by matter. It has. It has right. huge mass. Right. But if exactly. you were to go into it, uh, 
you wouldn't come out on, on some other side uh, exactly. in an alternative universe. Right. The- <laughs> right. And, 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 and what we have here is an example of how a black hole is formed. You could form it by colliding two neutron stars, right? This is what we just discovered with gravitational waves uh, LIGO event, um, is that we have one process that makes black holes. In this case, it's a very light black hole. But there are, the black hole masses ranges from, you know, very light few solar masses all to millions and billions of solar masses. So we have supermassive black holes which are at the center of some active galaxies. And here we have some, you know, very light uh, black holes that result from the merging of neutron stars, for example. Last question. If this were to have happened closer to, to our solar system than 130 million light years away if it had happened, right. if it were to happen, I don't know, closer, and Earth were to be bathed in, in, in this electromagnetic radiation and exactly. this pulse of, you know, ruffling of space-time, what, what effect would it have oh, yeah. on life on Earth? Well, I mean, first of all, if it were so close, then just the radiation that comes out of it. Like this one was detected as a gamma ray burst. So there is a burst of gamma rays. Um, The fact that it was 130 million light years away made it, you know, made the light diluted in the sense it's not harmful to us, right? But you know that, and also it emitted x-rays. But we know that x-rays and gamma rays are very harmful to humanity, right? And uh, so if this happens in our backyard, then definitely, just just if you think of the heat and the x-ray and gamma ray radiation that's emitted, this is going to um, really be very harmful uh, for us. Samwar Safi-Harb is Canada Research Chair in Supernova Astrophysics in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg. Safi-Harb has also just been included in a list of Canada's top 100 most powerful women. And that's it for today's edition of the Green Blues Show. The latest news, a bit of blues. Listen to us on CKUW 95.9 FM, University of Winnipeg Radio here in Winnipeg, and at CKUW.net. Subscribe to our podcast at GreenPlanetMonitor.net or around the world on iTunes. The Green Blues Show is created by Earth Chronicle Productions in cooperation with CKUW 95.9 FM. We're both based in Winnipeg, Canada. I'm David Kattenberg. See you again next time. Bye-bye.